0: So there is a, um, I guess like a lesson, maybe like a rule of thumb that you oftentimes teach to kids that are kind of uh, in the older elementary school years, or maybe in uh, middle school, because this is when it tends to go wild, and and it's it's about gossip. It's kind of a lesson that when you've been caught telling. Uh, when you've been caught gossiping or talking trash about somebody behind their back and they call you out and they're like, man, you were saying this about me, blah, 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 that was wrong. like, dang, I shouldn't have done that. The old adage is, okay, I want you to go put a piece of paper in every place you can remember that you shared that lie. I want you to just, you know, whether it be at school or whether it was um, at a place that you guys hang out, maybe a local coffee shop, whatever. And, and you tell that friend who's trying to be repentant about their gossip to go and put a piece of paper in every place where they shared that lie or that, that gossip about you, and then they come back and they report back to you. And so they report back to you and they're like, okay, I did it at every place I could possibly remember I ever said that about you. I went and put a piece of paper. They're like, okay, great. Now go pick up those pieces of paper. And they like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do that because the wind has blown it away. There's no way I could ever trace those things back. Like exactly, your words matter. And once they come out of your mouth, you can't ever bring them fully back. And so you need to watch your words and not gossip. Anyone ever heard that? Uh, maybe I was the only loud mouth and loose-lipped kid in, in my school, but, um, but it's a very true story that, that you, once the words come out of your mouth, there's no getting them back. And, and, and we're in the, the week three of our four-week core value series. And today's value is right relationships. And there is nothing that destroys trust and unity and family more than there's words that are loosely spoken. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1075. 1075. Now, if you forgot your Bible or your phone's dead, there's Bibles on the inside rows of every row, I guess. And the, I don't know. There's, there's Bibles on the inside rows. Um, if you do not have a Bible or you would like one as a gift, that is our gift to you. Uh, we want you to know, as is our custom, everything we teach and live and base our lives on comes out of the scriptures. So we want you to be able to read along in God's word with us and have God's word with you in your home. If uh, you don't like any of those options, they're on the screen. So, join me as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation." if you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love this passage. And, and there's an old Bible, Bible reading tip that, that never gets old and it's when you see therefore, you need to know what it's there for. See, therefore is a biblical word that means in summary of everything that was just said, this is true. So in chapter two, the only thing that was said before chapter two is chapter one. And so the therefore in verse one is saying because of chapter one, this is true. Now, in chapter one, we see a phenomenal passage and we're going to summarize that. So this therefore in verses three through 10 verses three through nine, Peter is talking to these people and he's saying, you guys have been given a gift. God has caused you by his grace to be born again. A- again, another Bible phrase that means you have turned from hell and went to heaven by placing your faith in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, okay? So he's writing to them in chapter one and he says, God has caused you to be born again. God has given you salvation. And that salvation is un... Or I, keep, I always mess this word up. Imperishable. The, the salvation is imperishable. It's undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are guarded by God's power. So in chapter 1, Peter says to them, you have been given salvation But not just any salvation, it's not temporary, it's eternal, it's imperishable. Why why does that, why does he make such a big deal about that? Well, if you look at the very beginning in in the greeting of this letter, Peter says, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad, and then he names several different cities. There was this huge persecution on everyone who believed in Jesus, and it caused all of them who were in this area, all these people who loved Jesus, they were being persecuted and they got kicked out of their houses. They had to flee to different cities so that they weren't beaten or killed or all their stuff was taken. And so as you think of the people receiving this letter, they've lost their homes, they've lost their jobs, and they've lost everything they've ever held dear, except The gift of salvation. And so Peter is writing to them, he's comforting them, and he's saying, look guys, you've been given salvation, and that salvation, although you've lost everything else, no one can take your salvation, because it's eternal, and God is the one protecting it for you. So that's what first part of the chapter, it gets better. Then it goes on, and in verse 10, I'm sorry I don't have these on the screen, I'm summarizing. Uh, On verse 10 it says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, remember we talked about Bible fluency last week? And we said that there was prophets who wrote and were inspired by God to write the Old Testament, and then the New Testament authors wrote uh, as apostles in the New These prophets, they were the ones writing down hundreds of years in advance about the Messiah, and it says they longed to understand what life would be like with the Messiah. See, they had faith in God, just like our faith, but their faith was that a Messiah would one day come. Our faith is that Jesus has come and that he did resurrect. Theirs was looking forward. We look backwards and it says that as those prophets were looking forward to the Messiah coming and redeeming sin on the earth, they were thinking, I wonder what this would look like to see the Messiah And so not only, friends, is our salvation eternal and it cannot be taken away, but hundreds of years ago, the the people who literally were inspired to write the Bible were longing to understand what it is that we possess today. Not only that, there's a third level. The angels longed to look at this salvation. The angels that live and dwell in heaven with God and are his messengers and his workforce. They longed to understand. Did you know that our salvation is more majestic than what the angels have? Salvation is a miracle. Salvation is majestic and it's ours in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 13 through 25, as we summarize the third part of of the first chapter, He says, because of that, be holy, which means to be like God in his character, which means that the world hates God, rejects God, doesn't follow God. He's saying you ought to be the opposite of that. It doesn't mean that we live in these weird little convents where there's never any lost people around us. It just means that amongst a lost and dying world, we are different than them because we have something that no one else has, salvation. That's undefiled, imperishable. The prophets wanted to understand it. The angels longed to look at it, and we have it. And so God says, or Peter is saying through God, that because, because God has given you salvation, you need to be holy. You need to be like Him. And so we see just in the first word of chapter 2, therefore, what what Peter is getting at is if God has saved you, you will strive to be holy. That's what this therefore is meaning. He's summarizing everything in chapter one. You've been saved. Now, if you've been saved, act like it. And so if God has saved you, you will strive to be holy. What does holiness look like? Well, it looks like the next passage. Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So he's saying, God saved you. Now this is what you need to get rid of. Right, God's called you to something, so we've got to lay some things down. And he begins right off the bat with all malice. Rid yourself. That word is like a a, a figure of speech that meant to take something off. So imagine Jesus has changed you from the inside, but you're still wearing your sinful jacket. And Peter is saying to us, rid yourselves, put away, take off the old behaviors of your sinful life. And then he calls us to to long for God later on in this passage. But he says... If God has saved you, you're going to strive to be holy. Now, in your striving to be holy, you're going to have to take off some of your sinful practices. So he's saying to take off these things. And he says, malice. Malice is having a bad attitude towards someone and wanting harm to come upon them. Now, let's set the stage here. These guys have already been kicked out of their cities, they've already been uh, ostracized by society. So he's talking about within the church. He's writing two Christians, four Christians. And so, of course, all of this applies. We shouldn't have malice or envy or slander towards people who don't know Jesus, right? That's a, that goes without saying. But as we're listening tonight, let's, let's really focus in on, on the context of a family, a church family, and what this type of sin would do to our family, And so he says, to take off and get rid of all malice. So get rid of this wishing harm would come to somebody. Says get rid of all deceit. Deceit is the use of uh, of tricking someone or, or lying to them to get something from them or get what you want. And so he's saying, church, put away all of these things put away hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I I think that it's really interesting that he says, you've been saved, now put away these things. He doesn't say put away adultery. He doesn't say put away lust. He doesn't say put away alcoholism. He doesn't say put away murder. You know, all the big ones that we think that if we don't do those, we're gonna get to go to heaven, right? But I have news for you. These are destructive sins as well. Again, they've been kicked out of their society. Society doesn't want them, and and so they know they can't trust someone who just stole their house and kicked them out. They can't trust them. Who can they then trust? Friends, if we cannot trust the family of God within the context of our church, who in the world can we trust? That's what Peter's getting at. He's saying that the church ought to be a sanctuary, ought to be a refuge where you don't have to worry about someone wanting to harm you or someone wanting to trick you. It's a place where the walls can come down. We talked about transparent community three weeks ago. That's what we're getting at. And the fastest thing to destroy a church are these things. Notice, again, he didn't mention murder, adultery, or killing, all those things. He mentioned all of these which are directly related to our personal relationships. So he says, put away malice, put away deceit, and then we come to the big one, hypocrisy. You could go to anyone in Barnett or Casper and say, what what are your thoughts on churches? What are your thoughts on Christians? And and a vast majority of them would be like, oh, they're hypocrites. Hypocrisy, is presenting one reality while, the different, while, there, while you know good and well that there is a different reality that is true. And so within the church, we say, oh, I love Jesus so much, I love my wife, and yet you're sleeping around on her in the background. You say, oh, I love, I, I love Jesus, and, and man, honesty is essential to my life and to my job, yet you're unethical in your business dealings. You're unethical in your taxes. Maybe let's bring it closer to to the text and to the sins that, that God mentions here in this passage. Say, man, I love God and I, and I love my church, but every time you have an opportunity to, spare, to, to share something negative about someone in that church, you're just like, oh, did you hear what this guy did? Did you, oh man, I heard they're having marriage problems. Did you know this? And, and you just look forward to and you, and you eat and you devour gossip and you're constantly just dividing the church. That's hypocrisy. To say that you love someone and then to do actions that would hurt that person intentionally is hypocrisy. God cares so much about his people and about the church and how they represent him. See, when you're hypocritical and when our churches act like this, when our churches say that we love each other but then we backstab each other, what we're doing is is we're taking God and we're smearing him with mud and filth and we're letting a lost world look at him. You think anyone wants to come to God when God's people are already hating each other? Absolutely not. Jesus talks about the church being uh, a city on a hill. If there was a small city on Casper Mountain, we wouldn't, there's no matter what, if they have lights on, you'd be able to see it because it's elevated and everyone can see. What Jesus says the church is a city on a hill. We're a light in the world and light in the darkness. And so church, when we live with hypocrisy, we dim the light of the gospel and we keep people from trusting in Jesus. Outfitter church, our aim is to be holy and to rid ourselves of these things so that when someone says we're a hypocritical church, the accusation doesn't stick. Maybe you've been attending and you're, you're wondering, maybe is, is this the church for me? Is this my future church home? Let me tell you that our promise to you is that we will refuse to allow hypocrisy to stay with us. We will sin, we will fall short. But our promise is that we will repent of that, we will rid ourselves of those things and we will walk forward in holiness. See, as we saw in the therefore that if God has saved you You will strive to be holy, and now we're seeing that if God has saved you, you will rid yourself of toxic behaviors. So he says, get rid of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy. Oh, those first three, not really a temptation for me, but now it's starting to land pretty close to home when it comes to envy. Um. There's a guy named Cameron Haynes. Uh, he's like a professional bow hunter. He's sponsored by Under Armour, and, uh, and he does all kinds of really cool hunting videos. And the dude on his Instagram, Cam Haynes, uh, he does on these videos, he runs at least a half marathon a day. Uh, and then a lot of times during certain seasons, he runs a marathon a day. Dude's like in his 40s. He may, I think he's in his 40s. Anyways, he has a, a catchphrase called must be nice. And with his clothing brand, he sells shirts and hats that say must be nice because everyone comments on his stuff, hating on him saying, oh, it must be nice to not have to work a job and be able to work out all the time. He's like, newsflash, I have a job. I do this on my lunch break, and then he kills these awesome animals. He has all these amazing hunts, and people are like, must be nice to be that connected that you don't even have to work for it anymore, and he's like, um, I don't know if you've forgotten that like, I didn't just uh, magically appear here. You don't know what I sacrificed to get where I am, and you don't know what I sacrificed to stay here, and so that's kind of the aspect of, of work when it comes to envy. Envy is being mad at someone because they have life better than you or you think they have life better than you. They may not even have it better than you, but you're just looking at it with these ugly eyes of envy and you're like, oh man, I just wish I had that or I wish I had that or I wish I had this. And so there's all that, that work side of things. You don't know, you have, we have no idea what people have done to get where they're at. And so who are we to be envious of them when we don't really know what all kind of a struggle and a grind went in to get them where they're at in life? That's just like the basic logic of it. But then there's some really strong spiritual things that we need to discuss when it comes to envy. See, envy reveals two faulty things. It reveals that you have a faulty understanding of God's love for you, and you have a faulty understanding of the gospel. Because if you're looking at someone else's life and you're mad at them that they have life better than you or you just think that they do, you're making assumptions, you have a faulty understanding of God's love for you. See, in doing that, you're saying that God loves them more than you. Or you're saying that God doesn't love you enough to satisfy you. And if you've read any part of the Bible, you would realize that you're the one in the wrong there. So you have a faulty understanding of God when we envy Have a faulty understanding of God's love for us. We also have a faulty understanding of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and for mine, because we're wretched, depraved sinners on our way to hell. And it was by God's grace that He saved us, and now gives us a hope and a future with Him. And so, for a, a sinner like me, who. In my early years, in my teenage years, I was in full speed rebellion against God and instead of him punishing me for my sin and my rejection of him, he saved me. His son took the death that I was supposed to die and my suffering for sin in hell, Jesus took that on the cross and he freely offers that to me. And so who am I to look to God and say, I wish I had what they had. Now imagine that, not just with people in the world or someone on Instagram, but with your family that's in the church. So friends, I encourage you, if if envy is something you're struggling with, and I've done this, you might have to unfriend them or unfollow them for a season of your life on Instagram or Facebook. Maybe, Maybe seeing them taking their trips isn't good for your soul, because you can't handle that because you're envious. So maybe take a break and just beg God to soften your heart. Maybe, maybe that person's so close to you or so connected to you in this church, that you, if you were to unfriend them or block them, they'd catch on and that'd be a really awkward conversation. So maybe instead, every morning you wake up and you say, God, you love me so much. I wanna be grateful for that. God, you saved me from my sins and given me eternal life and purpose in this life now. So Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me of my sin of envy and help me to love and honor and respect that brother or that sister. Maybe Google some verses on envy and start memorizing them. And every morning, just quote that verse until the envy is gone. Lastly, it says all slander. Slander is is, uh, sharing untrue things intentionally or unintentionally about somebody. Again, going back to the opening illustration of you can't take your words back. So when you talk when you talk trash about somebody whether whether that was untrue or not you've slandered them. Now let's just give a for instance. You're talking to person A about person B. Person B is not present person A has no clue of this information you then share this untrue information whether you thought it was true or you knew it wasn't and you share it anyways now person A has a negative view of person B and you have now slandered can i can i read you something about slander in proverbs chapter 6 verse 16 and 19 it's a passage that says, these, "These things God hates." and the last one that He lists, not in order of importance, is a lying tongue and one who sows discord. So God hates slander. Romans chapter one, verse 30, in, in this passage is a characteristic of, of attributes of people who hate God. And in that, he talks about a lying tongue or or envy and jealousy. And so to slander someone is to embody a characteristic of someone who hates God. And then in James chapter three, verse 16, he talks about jealousy of our neighbors is demonic. So when it comes to slander, again, we always think as long as we haven't murdered someone that that we're okay and we're gonna get into heaven. No, it's, but, but we often, over time, we overlook these, what we would classify as a little sin that, I mean, he's a jerk, I talk trash about him, who cares? He can get over it. But, but rather, what we're doing is, is when we slander, when we talk bad about someone and we make them look negative in someone else's eyes, what we are doing is something that God hates. It's a characteristic of people who hate God. And James, the Bible, inspired by God, says that it is from demonic influence that we're participating in that. Man, that floored me because I've oftentimes overlooked as long as I'm not doing these big sins, I can participate in gossip and it's really not that big of a deal. May the Lord forgive me for my sin. May the Lord forgive all of us for doing things that he hates. we must make a resolve that we will not speak negatively of people anymore. Two applications on that, it's our responsibility uh, the Proverbs talks about gossip goes down our, it goes into our mouths like, like a sweet piece of food and it just goes down into our stomachs. Gossip feels good because we're sinners. <laughs> because we, we love for someone else to not be better than us. And we love to share these negative things. Maybe you don't typically struggle with that, but, but most of us do. And so our first responsibility when it comes to these toxic behaviors that will destroy a church and destroy a community is that we ourselves have to tighten up our lips. We're not going to slander. Second thing, friends don't let friends slander. Ready? Here's a couple questions you can ask your friends. That's why I had to pull up the iPad because these questions were too good for me to butcher. All right, so if someone comes to you, they start sharing some negative stuff, and you go, "Hey, um, hey Joe, Bob, have you shared your concern with this person directly? I'd be willing to go with you to talk to him. that's gonna kill like eighty percent of it. This is just to be clear: is this information I should know? Do you want me to help you pursue reconciliation?" Meaning when you open your mouth about this, one, am I even supposed to know this? Two, once you tell me, I'm gonna be on your case to make it right with that person. So are you sure you wanna go down this road? That'll kill a lot of it. And then it says, (laughs) this this, this one stopped me in my tracks. Are you doing everything you possibly can to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander? That's Ephesians 4.31. So are you doing everything you can to not sin right now? No. Okay we probably don't need to have this conversation. Lastly, how can I help you guard this person's reputation like a treasure, which is in the Proverbs? Now, there are times, there are times when you do have to talk about someone else's sin. If you're ever looking forward to telling someone else about someone's sin, that's usually slander or gossip. If you're heartbroken, and miserable and weighed down in your soul, you're probably on the right track. Sometimes when there's clear cases of documented sin and you gotta go let someone in your church, your pastor or a church leader know, that's one of those appropriate situations. Or when there's abuse. When you find out about abuse, someone is in danger, it's right to go and share that with someone who can then help the situation. But when you've just found out about someone's deep, dark, secret sin, You don't go, hey, hey, we need to pray for so-and-so because you want to know what They're, they're struggling with this and they're they're doing this and they're they're doing this to their wife, and they've said this about their kids, and yeah, we need to pray for them. Oh, oh, what are we doing? What are we talking about? You know, when you're looking forward to sharing someone else's bad news, that's slander and gossip. And God hates that and it will kill a church. So we've seen just in the first like eight words of this passage that if God has saved you, you will strive to be holy. If God has saved you, you will put away toxic behaviors. And the next thing we see is that if God has saved you, you will long for him. Let me see, I know I changed this. Oh, sweet, I updated it. I knew I changed it this afternoon. I didn't know if I changed my slide. If God has saved you, you will long for him. It says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into salvation. So he says, God has saved you, and now because of that salvation, you need to put off these old sinful habits, and as you put those things off, what do you need to take on? You need to take on a longing for the Lord. Then it says, like newborn infants, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of, of, of my family dynamic, but we have a young, I think he's eight months old now. It's, it's going by really fast. Um, but we also have a two-year-old. So it's just been back-to-back of newborn infants in the Martin home. And, and now I, I recognize that in this room, there's, there's, there's probably heartache when it comes to, to childbirth and things of that sort. But generally... If you see a child be born, it it is one of the most majestic, powerful, miraculous things in the world because you see this this beautiful human life come into the world and and typically if all things are healthy, they set them on top of the mother and that baby who's only like eight seconds old in in regards to the earth, right, and coming into this world um, outside of the womb, that baby immediately finds its way to its mother where it can find nourishment and medicine milk. And only a few seconds old in this life, the baby knows how to long for what will bring it nourishment. And then, oh my goodness, babies are so happy to be held and passed around and until what? Until they get hungry. And then it doesn't matter if If Queen of England was holding my son, he's not gonna stop crying until what? Until he's with his mother who can provide nourishment. And so that's what Peter is saying. He's saying God has saved you and he calls you to then change your behavior. Now as you've taken off that sinful behavior, you need to replace it with a longing for God. And don't be satisfied. Refuse to be satisfied with anything else that's not God like newborn infants desire or long for the pure milk of the word. Now, as as I was first thinking about this, I was like, man, I just preached on Bible fluency. This says desire the pure milk of the word. Man, I'm gonna just harp on everything I just said. Just start reading the Bible more. That's what I thought at first. But as I studied and studied this more, uh, in John chapter one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it goes on and says, and the word became flesh. And so we understand that in the Bible, sometimes when it says the word, it's talking about Jesus. And so what I realized in this passage is that it says, uh, so God saved you, so it calls you to change as you're changing from your sinful behavior. Like newborn infants, desire the pure Christ. Desire Christ above all things. And a friend of mine. And and, um, we had a pretty candid conversation the other day. Now I've known him for a little while, so I I had the ability to be pretty blunt with him. But I said, hey man, I just wanna talk to you. I've known you for a while now, and I don't see any change in your life. And Jesus doesn't lose that much. Jesus is victorious. So if Jesus is in your life, you're gonna see victory. And I'm not saying you're not gonna sin. I'm not saying you're not gonna go through deep, dark secret or deep, dark battles with sin, but you won't live in it and you won't make your bed in sin. And so I said, brother, do you long for the Lord? Not really. Do you long to read his word? Not really. But I know I'm supposed to. I said, okay, man. Um, One of two things are true. Either you've been in sin so long your heart has become hardened and you don't even care about your sin anymore. I said, Man, you need to just seek the Lord. Fake it until you make it. You just need to start doing the right things. You need to start seeking God in prayer, in Bible, and getting connected to a church family and start asking God to forgive you. Even though you're like, I don't feel like repenting, you just need to ask him, God, would you give me the want to want to repent? I want to want to repent. Will you help me? So I said, either that's true, or I said, or despite your best thoughts, you truly did not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When you said that you put your faith in him, you you really didn't. I'm not saying you weren't sincere, but I'm saying if you've lived in sin ever since the moment you said you got saved, then you didn't get saved. And I said, and I won't know how to help you with that until you start longing for the Lord again. You know what's awesome? That brother has repented he is repenting. He's longing after the Lord. He's, he's, he's excited to, to share scriptures with people now. He's excited to, to share what God's doing in his life. He's excited to get into the word. He's texting me saying, hey, man, I've read the Bible this many days in a row. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Keep it up. One fight after another. One day after another. You got this. It says, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word. Why? Why are we shutting off sinful behaviors? Why are we longing for Jesus? So that you may grow up into salvation. My daughter loves to put on my shoes, right? My daughter has feet. Those shoes are too big. Now I have tiny feet, so in like three years, she'll probably be in my shoes. But (laughs) if she were to stand in them, she's gonna have to grow into them. And that's what it's like with our salvation. We were given this salvation that's imperishable, undefiled, it won't ever be taken away. It's amazing, it's a miraculous gift that we've been given by God's grace and we have it, it's ours. You're not gonna lose it, but you gotta grow into it. It's too big for you. And so what we do is we shed our sinful behavior. We long to grow in our knowledge and our love for Jesus. And as we're doing those things, and they will like, oh man, I didn't know that was in my life. Let me shed that off. Let me keep longing after God. And then you'll see another thing. You're like, let me shed that off. Let me keep longing after God. And, and what's happening is that you're growing into your salvation. Every day that you're following Jesus, you're becoming more and more holy, more and more like God in his character, growing into your salvation we won't ever fit into the salvation shoes in this life but when God calls us to glory in heaven when we die or when he comes back salvation is complete and we finally fit fully into what God has given us as a gift says if you have tasted that the Lord is good now, what's awesome here is that that Peter is quoting Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, David, the king, had gotten into a bad way with some bad people. <laughs> they tried to overthrow his kingdom. They tried to overthrow him as a king. They, everywhere he went, people were trying to kill him. And here in this one situation, he escapes death yet again in Psalm 34, and he writes about it in verse 8, and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And it continues on and on, in the whole or the whole Psalm 34 is David saying, those who trust in the Lord, he is a refuge to them and he will deliver them from the affliction that is around them. Remember, Peter's writing to people who are running for their lives and he quotes a Psalm where David is running for his life and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He will deliver you from your afflictions he will be faithful to you. So it says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So really what he's getting at is that for the Christian, you know that you've been given salvation so you strive to be holy. In that striving for holy, you God, since God saved you, you're gonna get rid of those toxic behaviors in your life that's causing personal relationship problems. And because of that, if God has saved you, you're gonna long to be with him, you're gonna long to know him, if you're saved. If you've tasted, taste means to experience. If you've experienced the Lord's goodness. So if God has saved you, you've experienced that he is good. If you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, though, then salvation is not yours. You have no reason to be holy. You have no reason to get rid of toxic behaviors. You have no reason to to long to know God. Because frankly, for the Christian, this life is as bad as it gets. The afflictions we experience here are temporary, and in heaven and in eternity, we will have joy and pleasure forevermore with God. This life is as bad as it's ever going to be for the Christian. For the non-Christian, this is as good as it gets. Can I encourage you, if you've yet to taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good, Would you please trade in the cheap thrills of gossip and slander? Would you please trade in the cheap thrills of sin? And would you taste and see that the Lord is good? We've talked about it in almost every point of this sermon that Jesus has died on the cross. There is incredible historical proof that the man of Jesus died and that the man of Jesus is no longer in that tomb my encouragement to you is why would you stay in this lost world? Why why would you stay in sin? If God wasn't true, why does the world hate him so much? If God wasn't real, then, then why were these Christians running for their lives? Because the people persecuting them knew that Jesus was real and that he had resurrected and that what they had was a true message, and it was gonna cause them to have to change their ways of life, and they would rather have the cheap thrills of sin than to have the eternal joy of God. And so, church, I I encourage you, because we've been saved, let's live in a life, let's, let's be people who or a refuge. Let's be a church where we don't have to worry about someone deceiving us or people being envious. Let's kill that sin before it kills us. What I think is amazing is that <laughs> Jesus had to die because we sinned, not him. If anyone had the right to have malice, <laughs> want someone to get hurt, Jesus had the right. And instead of having malice, he went to the cross. All deceit. God is the one who knows all things. He is all powerful. We always say power corrupts. No, power just shows that you were already corrupt. And yet God, with all power, has never once been deceitful. He is our example for honesty. Hypocrisy. I don't know how you could be fake when you give your life to love other people. Envy. Why would God have any envy of us? (laughs) He is perfect, he's holy. And instead of allowing us to die and suffer in our sin, he came to us in slander. Jesus knows every single one of your sins. And I think about in Jesus' life, he knew all the sins of all the people that were persecuting him and even killing him. Never once, never once did Jesus have loose lips. He never spoke slanderously of anyone. So in every way, church, Christ is our example. In every way, non-Christian, Christ has proven he's worthy. You can't live perfectly. You can't get out of this toxic habit of sin without Jesus' deliverance. And so my question for you tonight is: Will you trade in the cheap thrills of sin in exchange for an eternal joy in knowing God as your Savior? I'm going to ask that our band would come up, uh, and, and we're, we're going to so- sing a song of response here. But what type of response do we need to make? Well, if you're if you're a believer and you're an outfit, you're you're in the church. Our response ought to be, Lord, please forgive us for we have sinned. Now, Lord, strengthen me to be holy. Maybe tonight as as I've spoke, maybe God has opened your eyes. Maybe this salvation talked about in chapter one, God's made you realize you want it. And you don't wanna live in these toxic behaviors anymore, you want to be free from that. As the band plays, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond to the gospel. Jesus is here today in his presence inviting you to come, to be adopted, to be redeemed, to walk away from a hostile world and come into the family of God where you are safe and where God gives you the room to change and to transform, to be more and more holy like him in his character. If that's you, I'm going to pray. I'm gonna say a line and I'm gonna give you the opportunity to repeat that back to yourself in your heart. If you want to change, exchange cheap thrills for the eternal God, I encourage you to surrender your life to God by praying this prayer. God, I have failed you. I have had malice in my heart. I have deceived people. And I've been hypocritical. God, I admit that I've been envious of others. I admit that I've slandered. God, I want to change all that. I want to give up those toxic things. And I want to long for you like a newborn infant. I want to desire you. I want to grow up in my salvation. Forgive my sins, God. Give me life. I love you. In Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed that, if you surrendered your heart to God, I want to know I want to welcome you to the family of God. Please write that in the comment section on the connection card you were given when you walked in. I'll give you a call this week. We'll get you a Bible. We'll get you started walking on the right path. Let me pray for the church. God, I ask, Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for where we failed you. Help us, Lord, to to never sow discord amongst our body. Help us to be holy like you. Now, Jesus, please be blessed by our worship through song. Thank you for being with us tonight. In Jesus' name.